Good evening. Welcome to this evening's uh, Geography and Environment public lecture. It's great to see you all here. Um, brings me great pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Christian Parenti, the author of Tropic of Chaos, Climate Change, and the New Geography of Violence. Copies will be outside. You can purchase them after the session. Christian will be happy to sign them. Christian Parenti is Professor of Sustainable Development at the School for International Training Graduate Institute in Vermont and Washington, D.C., United States. He's a, a journalist, academic, public intellectual, author of numerous books, including Lockdown America on the U.S. Prison Industrial Complex, um, The Soft Cage, Surveillance in America from Slavery to the War on Terror, uh, The Freedom, Shadows and Hallucinations in Occupied Iraq, and this book, Tropic of Chaos, which he'll be speaking about today. He's also a um, contributing editor to The Nation and uh, writes, has written for uh, the London Review of Books, Mother Jones, and many other places. Um, he has uh, also won many awards for his uh, writing, including the Lang Taylor Prize and the Best Magazine Writing Prize for, from the Society for uh, professional journalists, and most importantly, he is also an LSC uh, alumnus. He was uh, received a PhD from the sociology department, though he was really uh, supervised by uh, Andy Pratt, who just walked in from geography, so we consider him one of ours. And uh, he really is also, uh, in many ways, represents the, what the LSE aims to be, uh, most of all, a place for engaged social science. Uh, so please join me in welcoming Christian Parenti. Hello. Uh, thank you very much for this invitation and for coming out this evening. So um, it's nice to be back at the LSE. Um, the, the thesis of my book is that climate change is already a driver of violence, uh, primarily in the global south, but also to some extent in the global north, in the reaction of uh, Western militaries and, and border police. So the, um, the book opens, uh, well, and the, the thesis is also not that climate change ever really acts alone, that you always have to put climate change in its proper historical and geographic context. And the way climate change acts as a driver is by exacerbating pre-existing problems, particularly two global-scale pre-existing problems that define politics in much of the global south. And those are the legacy of the hot proxy wars of the Cold War, which have littered the global south, or much of it, with cheap weapons and frequently unemployed men trained in the arts of assassination, smuggling, small unit combat, uh, insurgency, counterinsurgency, and, and flooded many countries with very cheap weapons. The other pre-existing crisis that climate change acts through is the legacy of neoliberal economic restructuring, which for the better part of the last almost really a generation now, you know, 20, 20 years, 25, maybe 30 years, uh, has been systematically uh, undermining the capacity of the state in the global south to provide social protection to people stripping the state of its ability to actually 
do development and build infrastructure and intervene economically and socially in ways that people who are in crisis need. So these are the two pre-existing crises. They're different in different places, but there is some sort of standard um, quality to them. And now onto this stage preset for crisis comes anthropogenic climate change in the form of increasingly extreme weather, droughts uh, punctuated by flooding, et cetera, et cetera. So the best way to explain this, and I call this combination of these three things the catastrophic convergence. Uh, This catastrophic convergence plays out differently in different places. So the best way to illustrate it is through these case studies. So the book opens in East Africa, where uh, in uh, northwest Kenya, where a Turkana pastoralist named Ekru Lorman has been killed the day before, and he's lying there dead, killed in a cattle raid. And I ask, why was this man killed? What killed him? And at one level, you could say, well, you know, it was members of the Pakot tribe who lived nearby who came down to steal his cattle, and he was defending his cattle, and in the gunfight, he was one of the six people who were killed. But you know, the, the region there is, uh, you know, badly affected by drought. Uh, many of the, really most of the trees in the Turkana, the acacia trees have died, and though it's illegal, the Turkana women are burning them for charcoal because they're, you know, dead and they sell them to truckers going in and out of South Sudan. And the people there are in profound crisis. So they can't turn to the state for, you know, uh, veterinary help with their animals or uh, help drilling new wells, leaving aside for a moment the problems of mining groundwater. So they, uh, and they can't do that because Kenya was one of the first African states to undergo structural adjustment beginning in the early 90s. And now the state in Kenya... Um, is really lacks the capacity and the resources to do much of anything other than coordinate famine relief in extreme cases. There are also internal reasons in Kenya and in any other of these case studies for why the state's capacity has, been, has become so threadbare. And, of course, the Kenyan elites, Daniel Arab Moy most famously, uh, stole wildly from the public purse Daniel Moy took $2 billion of, of the public's money in Kenya. But Kenya has also been forced to systematically reduce the role of the state, sell off assets, etc., etc. So people like Ekru Lorman try to adapt to climate change the only way they can, which is by picking up the gun and going after their neighbor's cattle, or picking up the gun and defending or trying to seize what few boreholes exist and what access to rivers exist. So why is the place flooded with weapons? Why is it that people who own very little other than cattle all own weapons and they have access to ammunition? That is directly the legacy of the Cold War. The story begins with the West's arming of Idi Amin, uh, trying to build him up as a bulwark. He is beyond sort of the imperial control of the U.S. and Britain, invades Tanzania. His war fails. His regime falls apart and his armories are looted, particularly a few right on the Kenyan border. And that's the first wave of cheap modern weaponry into Kenya. Then the second source of weapons to this day is Somalia. So why is Somalia a failed state? Why, is, why does this country hemorrhage weapons? Directly a result of the Cold War. And it's a very tragic story in many ways. Uh, the best of intentions led to the end of Somalia as a, as a functioning state. And the story is that 
it, the story really begins in, in Angola. Fidel Castro is trying to mobilize other third world states, sort of build a coalition of socialist states in the global south. He goes to the assistance of the MPLA, who are still in power, they're no longer Marxists, in Angola, informs the Soviet Union later, after he has sent special forces there, then successfully defeats, this is on the eve of independence in 74, defeats the South African mercenary force that has CIA advising that has invaded and uh, is so successful in the mission that basically convinces the Soviet Union to support him in reaching out to African states. That includes reaching out to Somalia and Ethiopia. There's a coup in Somalia in 1969. Said Bari comes to power. He declares himself for scientific socialism and uh, claims that this is compatible with Islam and a nomadic way of life. Then in 73 or 74, there's a coup against Haile Selassie in Ethiopia, and a group of Marxist officers take charge of the state. And for a moment there, there are Cuban and Soviet advisors in both Somalia and Ethiopia. But Saeed Bari, more than anything, was a Somali irredentist, and he wanted to be the father of greater Somalia. So he begins a war which is still going on today in the Ogden region, begins by funding these guerrillas. That gets out of hand and commits regular troops, and then it, he, it becomes obvious to him that there are, in fact, Cubans and Soviets on both sides, and, and Fidel is trying to uh, calm this war down, but for local reasons, Saeed Bari is committed to this, so he sort of overnight switches sides in the Cold War, banishes the Cubans and the Russians and Soviets, and the Carter administration comes to his aid, and millions of dollars are poured in through Pakistan and Saudi Arabia to Somalia. And for very local reasons, Somalia and Ethiopia fight a series of wars beginning in the late 70s, ending in 1991 with the collapse of the, the Somalian army. And there hasn't been a functioning state there since. And thus weapons just hemorrhage out throughout the region. And, out throughout the region. and that's where Ekru Lorman and the other people, uh, the Turkana that he were, was part of, where they get their weapons. So in that example, you see these three elements playing out almost in like a sort of, uh, you know, archetypal, ideal type fashion, where there's sort of, you know, equal parts almost, structural adjustment, diminishing the capacity of the Kenyan state to intervene in any way with alternative development programs, the legacy of the Cold War, destabilizing the region, and the really extreme weather, which is just been hammering the Horn of Africa uh, with a series of droughts that come several, you know, several in a row, and then there'll be a break, maybe one or two years. People don't even keep track of the droughts in many ways because they're not happening every 10 years or every seven years. They're pretty much every other year, every two years. And interestingly, at the same time, the Horn of Africa has actually seen an increase in the rate of precipitation over the last 30 years. But it comes, the rain comes all at once, at the wrong time, in the wrong place, so right after I left uh, the Turkana region, there was flooding, and people were flooded out. People drowned in this desert, and all the pit latrines flooded over, and there was typhoid then in the um, water supply. And then you know, this, of course, just is, uh, pushes erosion into fast-forward, and then the drought returns. So the increased precipitation doesn't really do much. And it's hard to say that any one extreme weather event is caused by climate change, though scientists are increasingly willing to say that a certain percentage of the intensity is due to climate change. Um, but whether or not this or that drought or this or that extreme event 
is caused by climate change. What is clear is that a pattern that has been predicted by climate scientists and their models for the better over 20 years is playing out and coming to fruition. And it includes precisely this uh, you know, disruption of the key weather systems, uh, such as the intertropical convergence zone that, that regulates the rains in Kenya, increased um, drought, and increased flooding. So this is, this is the pattern that has been predicted, and it's playing out. Whether or not you can say this event or that event is caused by climate change is much more difficult. But not all the cases of the climate violence being caused uh, are, are, are so clearly caused by a balance of these three forces. So an example of uh, a different scenario is in Kyrgyzstan. In 2010, you'll probably remember that the capital of Kyrgyzstan, Bishkek, went up in flames and Uzbek and Kyrgyz mobs were going after each other. It was mostly Kyrgyz going after Uzbeks who were seen as sort of originally having the upper hand. And it was reported at the time as just sort of, you know, age-old ethnic animosities coming, coming to the fore again. But really, the story is that Central Asia has been suffering one of the worst droughts in living memory for the whole last decade. And what that meant in Kyrgyzstan was that the main power supply, the Tokhtala Dam and Reservoir, which supplies 90% of Kyrgyzstan's electricity, reached its lowest water levels in recorded history. So the Kyrgyz government had, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, begun shock therapy, radical privatization, et cetera, et cetera. It was so damaging, and there was so much social dislocation, that this process was halted in the late 90s, early, maybe around 2000, I forget the exact date, but that whole process stalled. And in the face of this... Um, drought, the uh, government had to start rationing power, which then affected industry badly. There wasn't a full, uh, you know, without enough power, factories have to lay people off. If factories lay people off, then that cuts into demand, et cetera, et cetera. A downward spiral begins. So the, um, the government of um, uh, President Bakiev decides they're going to re-engage the privatization plan and they're going to start with the hydroelectric assets. And to make these assets more attractive to outside investors, they're going to double and then triple the power tariff. So, oh, and then another thing happens along the way, which is a year before that, the driest and coldest winter on record hits the region and the entire country basically shuts down for two or three months. There's nothing but essential services. Cattle herds are freezing to death on the hillsides. The old Soviet tower blocks, are, the pipes are bursting from uh, you know, freezing and bursting. Pensioners literally freeze to death. And so that further damages the economy, and there's more unemployment, et cetera. So in the spring of 2010, early 2010, people hit the streets protesting this planned sale of these hydroelectric assets and demanding better life chances. And unfortunately, this protest is hijacked slash devolves into ethnic rioting because part of this decade and a half of suffering that Kyrgyzstan has gone through has created pools of lumpenized young men who don't have jobs, they don't have education, they spend their time hanging out in casinos, drinking uh, with their ethnic, you know, uh, kith and kin, and building their animosities towards each other. And so young Uzbek and young Kyrgyz thugs, essentially, sort of hijack what is a broad protest about 
living conditions and economic opportunity, and it turns into ethnic violence. And so one, president, uh, one government falls, the new government comes in uh, and asks the Russians to intervene militarily, and they wisely decline, having had previous experiences in small mountainous, or not so small, but mountainous um, Central Asian countries uh, intervening militarily. And the, you know, the situation stabilized more or less. And there you can see that beneath this ethnic crisis is an economic crisis, and beneath that economic crisis is an environmental crisis. And that's not to reduce the whole thing to the water levels in the dam, but it's just to try and draw out the climatological element in the crisis. So there the story is, you know, you know it's not really about Cold War militarism. I mean, Kyrgyzstan never suffered any sort of proxy wars. There aren't cheap weapons everywhere, but there is this legacy of neoliberal economic restructuring, this explicit assault on the state and its capacity to do anything. And that's part of what primes the society for crisis. In other situations, um, it's much more clearly the Cold War. It's the primary precondition. So just south in Afghanistan, which is in many ways where I decided to write this, write this book, I was researching the opium and heroin trade and, and interviewing poppy farmers. And I did a series of stories about this over a number of years. And always part of the reason, and I would, I would ask the farmers, why are you growing this crop? This is officially uh, banned by the government. There are these eradication programs, a lot of which generally didn't really work, but what these eradication programs become are like shakedown programs. So the eradication squads can go out there and basically terrorize the farmers and bribe them and cut some deal to not cut down their poppy crops. So whether, the, whether or not the crops are cut down or whether or not the profits of the crops are cut away by the police, it still causes suffering among the farmers. So I was saying, why do you take this risk? Why do you do this? And part of the answer that they would always give me that for a while I didn't even hear was, among other things, that poppy is very drought resistant. And at first, I didn't even really know there was a drought in Afghanistan. But lo and behold, this drought that's affecting Central Asia has been hammering Afghanistan. And poppy, it turns out, uses one-sixth the amount of water that wheat uses. So under these extreme climatic conditions in Afghanistan, poppy is in fact one of the only crops that is economically feasible. You can't really grow wheat. You can't grow grapes and, and um, the other crops that are central to the sort of development strategies of the NATO occupation. And in this war, there's one side that defends the farmer's right to grow poppy, and that is the Taliban, and Hezbollah, Islami, and, and uh, um, the Haqqani network. And so it's not to reduce the war to poppy, not to reduce the war to the climatological, environmental implications of poppy, but it's just that even in that situation, there was a climatological driver to some extent. I mean, the, the fact that the Taliban defend the farmer's right to grow poppy is, to my mind, part of what explains why they have an endless line of young recruits and civilian supporters. There's also, obviously, the religious element. There's the ethnic element. The Taliban is very much a Pashtun insurgency, uh, seen as resisting Tajiks and Uzbeks in the north. And those are all, in many ways, much more important than the climatological crisis. But 
even there, there's an aspect of this catastrophic convergence of the climate change interacting with social forces. So in Afghanistan, the cle- you know, what, what clearly sets the stage for crisis is that Afghanistan was a buffer state, frontline state between the Soviet Union and the U.S., flooded with weapons, occupied. Um, that's what caused the collapse of the Afghan state. And it was never actually subject to any structural adjustment. There was, I mean, even today, there really hasn't been much privatization of assets there. So, you know, it's not that this combination of things always works in exact proportion in every place. Another example uh, is India, where I went to northern Andhra Pradesh and tried to research the situation with the Naxalites. And there, it's, um, again, very serious drought articulating itself through economic restructuring. The Indian state begins to liberalize in 91, and that means that the state has been withdrawing its agricultural extension programs, withdrawing its ability to support farmers out in the countryside, and particularly in terms of alternative credit systems. And so, in the face of drought, when crops fail, farmers have to borrow money to try and make it to the next season and hopefully survive. They can't turn to a properly regulated banking system or to some small, you know, socialized extent, you know, credit program for farmers, so they turn to the money lenders, to the local market. The money lenders, for a variety of reasons, um, one of them being that the environmental crisis is such that they don't want the land, don't take the land as collateral they'll only take crops as collateral. And the only crop that they'll lend money for is cotton. And the reason that they only lend money for cotton is because the farmers can't steal it in a crisis. They can't eat the cotton. Whereas if they extend credit for grains, there's always the risk that the farmers will eat the grains and feed their family. But there's nothing you can do with cotton other than turn it into money, and that's what the moneylenders want. So this downward spiral begins. And the other thing that's going on there is genetically modified cotton has moved in sort of informally uh, along with, sort of begins with this whole kind of informal migration of green revolution technologies from ERISA, which was targeted um, for the introduction of these, uh, you know, hybrid seeds and fertilizers, et cetera, et cetera, in the 60s and 70s. And then people from ERISA move into Andhra Pradesh and they kind of bring these, uh, this style of farming with them. And now the predominant form of cotton, it's only been a couple years, five to seven years, that in this part of northern Andhra Pradesh, that they've been using GMO cotton. And it is, uh, you know, worse for the soil. You get uh, bountiful yields at first, but then the yields drop off precipitously. It requires more pesticides, more fertilizer, so the farmers go deeper into debt. They need more capital. They go to the money lenders down and down the spiral goes, to the point where, as I'm sure many of you have heard, farmers across India are committing suicide. 200,000 farmers, it is estimated, across India have committed suicide. In Andhra Pradesh, the estimate is about 2,000 farmers have committed suicide over the last decade or so. And in a sort of like horrible um, poetic statement, they frequently do this by drinking the pesticides used on the cotton which sounds like the, probably one of the worst ways one could die. So all of this, this, this 
crisis of the credit system is exacerbated by this drought. And um, you can imagine how if you're a farmer and you're on the verge of killing yourself and the Naxalite guerrillas come along, who are a Maoist insurgency that begin up in uh, West Bengal in the late 60s, named for a village where there was a massacre and this protest was born out of the village of Naxalbari, which is in Darjeeling, the, the region that the tea comes from. And the, the Naxalites have been um, moving down the coast. So if, the, if, there was a, if, I, if I was not adamantly opposed to PowerPoint, because power corrupts and PowerPoint corrupts absolutely, I would have a map up here for you. And you can imagine the, the east coast of India here. And there's what the security officials call the Red Corridor, which is how, where the, the Naxalites have sort of crept down from their their bastion, their original bastion in West Bengal, down through Andhra Pradesh, sort of into Orisha and beyond. Um, they're now very active in Chhattisgarh, just north of Andhra Pradesh. And the Red Corridor is also the drought corridor. And you can almost you know, track district for district. The worst affected districts uh, by drought have the most Naxalite activity. And you can imagine why. If you're a farmer and you're about to commit suicide, and the Naxalites come along and say, well, why don't you help us and essentially commit political homicide? You, would, you might want to embrace this. And they, you know, they essentially say, we have you know, a short-term solution and a long-term solution. The long-term solution is we're going to build you know, a people's state in uh, India, and there's going to be socialism, et cetera, et cetera. But the short-term solution is when the moneylender comes back, we're going to stop his car, and we're going to drag him out, and we're going to kill him. And when the cops come, we're going to ambush them, and we're going to drive these people out of your community. So even if you don't buy the long-term solution, in that desperate situation, you could at least imagine buying into the short-term solution. So, um, and then as the, as the thesis progresses across to the Americas, it becomes increasingly attenuated, I admit. Um, the examples are sort of less and less direct. But in Mexico, I looked at uh, Juarez and tried to figure out, how, you know, how much of, is there, is there any climate connection here? And sure enough, it doesn't take much time going around Juarez interviewing people to hear stories about environmental degradation and environmental crisis that have driven people from their homes. So I spoke with a group of Tarahumara Indians who had, uh, were forced to leave the land because of persistent drought. And then went in to, to make up for the loss in their crops, they started logging in part to build Juarez. Once they had cut down all the trees, they went to Juarez to look for work. A fisherman who had um, been driven out of Michoacan in the late 80s because uh, El Nino created a red tide algae bloom, drove the fish away. This has to do with increased uh, temperatures in the sea, but also, of course, bad practices on the land of overuse of fertilizers, cutting down mangrove forests, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He had a bad year. Due to NAFTA, the, the fishing industry, which traditionally in Mexico, for better and for worse, was heavily regulated, controlled by the state. There were uh, strict laws about where artisanal fishers could operate, where the commercial fleets could operate. All fish was sold through state-owned processing companies. All of that is done away with, with under NAFTA. So too, the financing structures that had been there. And so this fisherman had no one to turn to for help eventually had to sell his, his skiff and, and his equipment and moved to Juarez, eventually got into the U.S., was working as a, um, a, a builder, a roofer, and then got thrown out of 
got thrown out of the U.S. And when I met him, he was sitting literally on the south bank of the Rio Grande looking at the U.S. And he said, you know, he's saying, I'm getting phone calls from my boss in Las Cruces, New Mexico. He's got a job for me if I can get back. But border militarization means that it's not so easy to get back into the U.S. And he, and he said, you know, I, you know the, the dangerous, this is dangerous. The desert is really dangerous. I need a coyote to get back. I can't do this on my own. And I need $3,000 to hire a coyote to get me back in to where I have a job. And he said, you know, the only way I can make any money here in Juarez is to get involved in all of this violence, deliver a package for somebody, uh, you know, be a lookout, learn to use a gun, kill somebody. So it's not that the crisis in Juarez in northern Mexico is driven by climate change. It's driven by neoliberalism primarily uh, and also by the collapse of sort of the hegemony of the pre, which is a point that I only sort of really learned later uh, after writing this book, is that you know, with the departure of the pre and the pan taking power, old sort of networks, sta stable networks of corruption were undone, and there's been this power struggle ever since. So there's many other causes for the violence other than climate change, but clearly there's some element of climate refugees being stuck there, having no other option, and becoming, particularly for young men, unemployed young men, becoming the foot soldiers in what at one level is a drug war, but at another level, because of the breakdown of law and order in Juarez, is just a sort of uh, free-for-all. I mean, the, in 2009, I believe that 2% of all murders went to trial in Juarez. So it, it's, it's, it's almost guaranteed that if you want to kill somebody in Juarez, you think someone's sleeping with your wife, you can hire a teenager to go shoot that person. And chances are basically 98% you're not going to get caught. So there's now just a spiral of violence that goes far beyond climate change or, or drug politics even. So that's how climate change is driving violence to some extent in the global south. But what about in the north? In the north, you see it in the form of border militarization, which is increasingly articulated in terms of uh, keeping environmental refugees out. There is an element in the southwest of the U.S., in Arizona, where they passed this law, SB 1070, which obligates the police to stop anyone they think might be an undocumented migrant and demand to see their papers. And if the police don't do this, citizens have the right to sue them personally, not the police department. They have the right to sue the police officer. This law is born out of a, you know, a milieu that includes a type of right-wing xenophobic American nationalists who are increasingly explicitly environmental. There's one of the most famous people is Brenda Walker, who uh, is, you know, calls herself a Northern Californian environmentalist, and she's an open racist against Mexican migrants. And in places like Las Vegas, Nevada, and Phoenix, Arizona, it is obvious to anyone that the business of the city is growing the city and the main input for that is water and the region is running out of water. So people will articulate this kind of like armed lifeboat mentality that yes there's an environmental crisis, there's not enough to go around so instead of transforming the system in the way we live, their solution is we got to keep people out, we got to arm the, you know, we have to build more of a fence, we have about half of the border is fenced off, the border patrol has the, what would be considered one of the largest, I think it'd be the second largest air force in the world if it was its own separate air force. There are um, 
pushing there's 20,000 Border Patrol. Obama has added more. I don't know the, the current number. Uh, on any given night, there are 30,000 undocumented migrants in generally privately held detention facilities where the conditions are horrendous. And um, anyone who's read my work on prisons knows that you know, most, most prisons are not privatized in the U.S., um, but in the immigration detention sector, they are actually dominant private sector. Um, so that's a, you know, that's a form of repression, surveillance, state violence that is increasingly driven by the crisis that's driving people off the land in the global south and by a kind of right-wing environmental imagination in the north. But the main way that you can see hints of an emerging sort of securitization around climate change is in the military and their writings on climate change. And the, the U.S. military is one of the few branches of government that takes the science very seriously, and there's no debate. And they, you know, they use the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's assessments as a basis for their modeling and for their um, studies. And there are numerous declassified and open um, studies that the military have, has done about climate change. And what they see is a future not marked so much by interstate warfare, not an increase in interstate warfare over resources, but an increase of internal warfare, of social breakdown in the form of class-based, ethnic-based, religious-based insurgencies, or increased banditry and state failure due to um, environmental crisis. And they see that the U.S. military is going to be called upon to engage in uh, all across the global south more and more. And in numerous of these reports, what they essentially articulate is a program of open-ended counterinsurgency on a global scale. And to their credit, you know, they, the military generally end their reports with saying, you know, there's limits to what we can do, and this is really a problem that goes beyond any military solution, and it's up to civilian policymakers to come up with solutions here. And in the meantime, what we do is fight wars, and what we do is break things and kill people. So uh, we imagine that this is how we're going to be doing that. It's going to be kind of open-ended counterinsurgency on a global scale, and we're, you know, preparing for it. Um, so to their credit, they don't, they don't necessarily exude glee about this at all. Um, so that's, that's the picture of the early stages of climate violence. And, and I you know, try to contextualize this dynamic specifically in each place. And in the end, I, I offer some solutions, uh, which I think are worth mentioning. They're, to some extent, specific to the United States. But I mean, here's the good news, right? The bad news, as you know, first of all, uh, is that we're locked in for climate change. I mean, the best case scenario, if we move off of burning fossil fuels rapidly, uh, there's still a considerable amount of warming that we're locked in for, and that will lead to sea level rises and continued extreme weather. So even in the best case scenario, we're, we're locked in for more change. Um, the discourse around climate science, you know, hinges on the idea of adaptation and mitigation. And I've been talking essentially about bad adaptation. Mitigation is moving off of fossil fuels. And I'm sort of, in these comments, just to interrupt myself, I'm assuming that most of you take climate science seriously. And if you don't, I suppose I'll hear about it in the question and answer. Um, but I take it seriously. That's sort of the premise of uh, where, I'm, where I'm coming from. 
Um, so, but the good news is that the technology to deal with this exists. It's not like we haven't invented photovoltaic cells or um, effective windmills or um, you know, tidal kinetic power. There's plenty of money. The United States military has you know, a huge budget, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but more importantly, the private sector in the U.S. is sitting on $2 trillion of uninvested cash, more uninvested cash than at any time since 1956, according to the Federal Reserve. I'm not talking about bonuses paid to CEOs. I'm not talking about dividends paid to stockholders. This is cash retained by firms for investment, usually parked in low-yield, short-term government um, bonds and equities. And they're waiting for the economy to pick up. They're waiting for some sort of clarity, you know, where and how to invest. If the U.S. government took a transition off of fossil fuels to clean energy seriously, there would be enormous amounts of money that would be ready to build out this infrastructure. The government, another resource the government has, because of course you, you know, cut the military budget, okay, well that's very difficult, but the, the, the sort of the most obvious and least discussed resource the government has to do this is its spending. And this is something that environmentalists and progressives in the U.S. don't really talk about that much because I suspect it's a, a talking point of the right. The right goes around, particularly Grover Norquist, who's the, the sort of chieftain of the anti-tax crusaders in the U.S. He's always talking about how the federal government has gotten too big. And the fact of the matter is, if you don't count you don't double count money that the federal government gives to states. The federal government and state governments together constitute generally about 35% of U.S. GDP. And that's a lot. The, the federal government has is the single largest power consumer in the U.S. economy. It has uh, a huge fleet of vehicles. The post office alone has 140 vehicles, all of which or not all of which, but most of which basically drive an average of 18 miles a day and park in the same place every night, there's no reason they shouldn't be electrified. The federal government has uh, a fleet of 450,000 mostly large office buildings that all consume power, and those buildings could be retrofit, retrofitted for efficiency so that they could possibly even produce power, but most importantly, the federal government is going to buy electricity and it's going to buy vehicles. Why not use that money to help create markets for clean tech firms? And this is, this is a no-brainer. This happens and there's you know, very strict rules about uh, American content quotas in what the government buys. And so this could, this could happen without going to the Republicans for more money, et cetera, et cetera. The final thing is, you know, is there the legal framework for this? And there definitely is. One of the great tragedies of the Obama administration was that the first two years, the Congress, the House, and the Senate wasted two years trying to come up with comprehensive climate legislation. And we actually already have enabling legislation. It's the Clean Air Act of 1970, passed under Richard Nixon. So what happened is that with the Kyoto Protocol, the first international agreement trying to cut carbon emissions, Clinton signed it, but he couldn't get it ratified by the Senate because foreign treaties have to be ratified by the Senate under the U.S. Constitution. So it never went into effect. So at that point, states and green groups sued the, federal, sued the EPA, saying that under the Clean Air Act of 1970, amended in 1990, 
It is the obligation of the, of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, that is, to regulate and control pollution from smokestacks that is harmful to human health and greenhouse gases, the primary one of them being carbon dioxide, is harmful to human health. It, Massachusetts led the way. They said there's going to be sea level rises. There, there is a scientific consensus. It's real. They say there's going to be sea level rises. That's going to harm Massachusetts. It's going to harm people and the economy in Massachusetts. Therefore, this qualifies. You have to regulate this. This took 10 years. The Supreme Court in 2007 ruled, yes, in fact, the EPA has the obligation to do this. The Bush administration ignored this, ignored the law. Obama came in and people hoped, well, maybe he'll follow the law. And he appointed a fairly decent person as head of the EPA, but has issued only two of about 30 rules that are waiting to be issued. If the EPA had issued these rules and done so aggressively and, and given them robust um, form, that would essentially impose a, a de facto carbon tax on the economy, which would help steer money towards clean energy. And you've seen this. There was one example of, of this, which they finally um, issued fairly strict rules about new source uh, coal plants. New, new source point review, I think, is what it's called in, in wonkies. And so they've issued these rules, and it basically says you're free to burn coal or whatever else you want in your power plant, but the emissions levels are so strict that it's technologically impossible to do that. They did this, of course, because natural gas has come online and basically destroyed, due to hydrofracking in the last five years, the United States gas supply went from a 20-year supply to a 100 or more year supply, and energy prices have collapsed. And it's actually very easy to retrofit most coal-fired power plants with natural gas. The main thing that held them back was the, the price of natural gas and the ease of storing coal. You have to have pipelines to get to the plants, whereas coal, you can just dump heaps of it in holding areas and leave it there in the rain and there's no problem. So with the, the natural gas revolu re revolution, coal was sort of doomed anyway, so the Obama administration finally issued one of these laws. They issued another one of these, they're, they're not laws, they're, they're rules, issued another one around smog. But I mean, all the pieces, the good news is that all the pieces are there, even, even under the really overheated and distorted and weird political climate that obtains in the United States today. So, on that note, uh, I will wrap up my comments and open it up to your questions. We have, uh, we have two mics at the back there, and uh, we are open for questions. There's a question in the middle. I mean, maybe you don't need the mic. I don't know. But. Okay. Um, I want to ask a question about adaptation because I think your message of hope was largely around mitigation, but it seems that if we're locked into two degrees of dangerous climate change plus the thesis of your book, then is really the rational thing for governments to do is to start boosting their militaries and their border defence. And do you think that your book could be used to support that argument? Could, could my book be used to sort of increase securitization of this problem? Yes, it could. But, um, you know, uh, as a scholar, I feel like my obligation is to try and describe what's really going on and theorize it. And so, um, 
first of all, I, I think they're going to do that anyway. They don't need, you know, some some strange guy's book to do that. But um, I, uh, I mean, one of my pet peeves about U.S. progressives is is their tendency to sort of simplify and and tailorize messages to tailor messages to to uh, sort of imagined outcomes and audiences. And I think it's important for us all to be sophisticated in how we see this and uh, acknowledge what's going on. And I, so I thought this was a useful intervention. I was, I was surprised when I first started working on this book, I would tell people I'm working on a book about climate change and violence. And a lot of people would be like, climate change and violence, what's the connection? Like, you know how civilization is dependent on food and that's uh, dependent on like the environment? Like, Uh, thank you very much. Uh, your, your last uh, point just uh, feeds into what I was going to say. Um, my name's Ewan Grant. I'm a former intelligence analyst in the British Customs Service for the ex-Soviet countries, and I, I've worked in Kyrgyzstan, and your description of the impact there of both heat and drought and also the cold winters, particularly on electricity, was absolutely spot on. Thank you. It really did affect life there. Um, I would just also add, before quickly getting the short question in, that um, the Department of War Studies at King's College, uh, there was a gentleman from the US Air Force speaking yesterday, it will be on their website, on the military study he has conducted on the impact of climate change on military postures, and it's an extremely interesting talk indeed. My question is, how are the civilian international aid and development agencies reacting to your thesis and that gentleman's thesis, and um, whether independently of military organizations around the world or uh, together with them? Are they getting this? Because I'm not, from my experiences, I'm not the greatest admirers of the likes of the World Bank and the UN in being able to link up anything that isn't very obviously connected. And the example I think I would go there is um, Yemen, where I've worked, and Horn of Africa, and uh, the US through system ringing, shining up the, the red lights on drought, but other agencies not, not looking at those red lights? Um, I, I think that, um, the, I mean, I don't see much change in, in U.S. discourse. It seems like in England, in the, in the U.K. here, that you, you have a much more sophisticated conversation going on about climate change at every level and in every sector of the society and economy. So it seems like that's the, that's the cutting edge of sort of development and aid thinking around this stuff. And in, in the U.S., it's, uh, I haven't really studied this closely, though. Um, I don't see much evidence that, um, that this is entering development discourse that much. And yeah, I mean, I'm now teaching in a development studies program, and I'm doing my best to sort of say, like, development from now on is adaptation, whether you know it or not. I mean, that's the central issue. And, um, and in terms of 
adaptation to one of the earlier questions. I mean, part of what I argue around that is, is also like, look, you know, the first step of adaptation and sustainable development, a, a badly misused concept, um, is to look at what is already sustainable, you know. And uh, I say this, uh, you know, not with a kind of silly romanticism for, um, um, you know, traditional societies and, and, and non-capitalist, pre-capitalist, if you prefer, modes of production, because that's something that also really bothers me, this tendency of Americans to just romanticize things and distort their effectiveness. But, you know, there are lots of examples of, of um, farming patterns that have been around for thousands of years that manage water and soil and don't lead to erosion, et cetera, et cetera. And those, those systems exist, and they need to be studied and scaled up and integrated. But in terms of your question, it's like, I, you know, it seems that in the U.S. people are highly suggestible. Organizations are highly suggestible and this issue has been pushed off the agenda. And the whole climate gate thing really had an effect on, on the discussion. I mean, I don't know if any of you saw the presidential debates, but I mean, they, the, the second debate between Romney and Obama, they had a huge section on energy, and none of them mentioned climate change. So that then trickles down. So that's what the foundations do. That's what the... Um, you know, international organizations and, you know, in their offices in D.C. do. They're like, climate change doesn't have any traction. We're not talking about climate change now. And, you know, they, they try and approach it indirectly. And it's, that's disastrous. We have a question here? Oh, yeah, I think on that as well, uh, I think this is the first presidential debate that didn't uh, have any, any commentary about climate change in about 30 years, wasn't it? I think it was, that was one of the articles in the news, I think. But, uh, yeah, so my question was... Um, that uh, I read, I've been reading some things recently that have suggested how things like the Arab Spring are tied directly to uh, areas where food prices are very high, yeah. and I guess that's obviously very related to, to climate factors. Uh, and some of, the, some of the articles that I've read recently have suggested that next year, particularly, is, uh, they were looking at very large spikes in food prices, wheat prices, and so on, mm-hmm. uh, certainly, again, across the Middle East, and, and then up into other areas, some parts of Europe and Eastern Europe and so forth. I just wondered whether you knew any more or had any comments about that or what sort of predictions you might have regarding that over the next few years. Yeah, I, I, I think, um, I actually, not, not, to, not to brag, but I think I actually wrote one of the first articles making that connection. That was, public. and then, but now you know the Economist did a you know a really good article on it. And it's now become sort of like common uh, parlance, but it's called the world in the loaf of bread. I think is the title they gave it. And it was in various places. Le Monde Diplomatique ran it. But yeah, in terms of the Arab Spring, you know, you have to wonder why did it happen? You know, why was this rebellion uh, in 2011 and not you know 2005 or 2015 or whatever? And there was this intense food price spike, the second one in five years. What drove it were uh, drought and flooding in the U.S. Midwest, drought and flooding in Australia, and the worst drought in 100 years in the Black Sea region, which has affected Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and um, Russia. It got so bad that at the urging of Glencore, uh, the like the, generally the second largest commodity trader, I think, after Cargill, and also privately held and um, started by a former or maybe current fugitive from U.S. law. No, he, Mark Rich, he, I think he, he did come back in and do his time. But um, based in Switzerland, Glencore uh, in, wrote in the FT, they urged Russia to ban wheat exports, and uh, Russia did. And then Glencore actually had a, a very successful IPO on that, so they started taking part of themselves public. Um, 
So what that meant was that between June 2010 and June 2011, corn prices went up 91%, wheat prices went up 83%. In Egypt, it, Egypt is the single largest importer of wheat in the world, and it had a lot of Russian contracts. Uh, food inflation was, when I did my research, was running at 20% a year that year. The average Egyptian spends 40% of their income on food, which is actually a lot better than some, many people in the world spend 80% of their income on food. Um, the Economist then later said that it was running at like 38% uh, food inflation. But, you know, and part of what the demands were in Tahir Square were about food and the standard of living. The last thing President Ben Ali did when he fled Tunisia was promise to subsidize food prices. So clearly, you know, the Arab Spring, sort of a misnomer, um, you know, the more one looks at things like the state of women um, and their, you know, diminished role in the Egyptian parliament and all the wars that came out of the Arab Spring. I mean, this is not to blame the protesters or whatever, but the fact of the matter is, you know, Libya, Yemen, Syria, I mean, these wars are not reducible to or caused by this, but they're linked to this whole moment of ferment and upheaval. So I, I see it, yeah, as clearly as a trigger. And now we are at levels of food price increases uh, comparable with 2007, the first food price spike. And I think it has become in the last couple of years common sense that this is going to translate into instability. And I believe, in, term, in answer to the, your question, sir, I think that I'm not quite clear on what has happened. I know there are serious discussions about holding back on the next scheduled increase of ethanol in U.S. gasoline. Currently, the, the U.S. corn crop is the second largest crop of anything in the world. The Brazilian sugar crop is the largest, and about like 40-something percent, I think 47 percent of our corn goes into producing ethanol, and it's mandated in the U.S. that 10 percent of every gallon of gasoline is ethanol, and that's scheduled to increase. And this is because you look at the map, you see where corn is grown, it's swing states. So, you know, nobody is going to uh, take on this interest. And there's powerful corporate interest behind it, too. But there's also this, you know, very kind of grassroots element to it that's just like, if you talk about, uh, you know, not uh, like, you know, cutting back on the use of ethanol, that's, that's an a electoral death sentence in, in a lot of those states in the Midwest. Uh, thanks for a fascinating presentation. You seem to largely be focused on, apart from the U.S., the developing world. Um, is that due to the fact that, obviously, the infrastructure is, is a lot better in place, or do you think that as climate accelerates, they tend to get a lot of unrest in, in the West as well? And then on the U.S., um, you say there's lots of permits that line that way to be be approved, but I seem to recollect that one of the things recently be approved by EPA was then overturned and, and sued by the Republican Party, so they have to overturn it. So if Obama went ahead and approved 20 rules, wouldn't he just get a low series of, of lawsuits against him? And no, so yeah. Also, I'm that Romney have also, Romney of the Republican Party said that they're threatened to close down the whole EPA if they were going to get in power, and what kind of effect could it have? on the clean against in the U.S., but also the rest of the world? Um, 
Yes, the, the Republicans are they they hate the EPA and they have a, you know an obsessive campaign against it because it works fairly well. I mean, it could work a lot better around climate change, but it, it is you know it works effectively around uh, cleaning up the air and the water. I mean, deindustrialization uh, also has a lot to do with how the air and water in the U.S. has cleaned up over the last 30 years. But in my lifetime, I've seen the water quality in New England transform completely, and a lot of that has to do with the EPA's rules. Um, this lawsuit against the sort of the smog ruling, and um, it's, it has to do with how air districts, air quality districts are defined and whether in a new point source review, whether it's the plant itself or the quality of the air in the district. This is the nature of the suit that I think you're referring to. And it's not gone all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has already ruled on Massachusetts versus EPA. So this is like guerrilla warfare, you know. The, the right is, is launching these suits to slow things down, to intimidate the EPA, to muddy the waters. But the only way they can undo Massachusetts versus EPA is if they control the presidency and get a, a law through the um, Congress and Senate that isn't vetoed that would, that would gut it. But these cases alone won't do it. Uh, my name is Hanshin from Geography Department here at the NSC. Uh, you started your talk with uh, identifying those problems that you see and observe in countries outside the U uh, U.S., uh, in India and elsewhere. And towards the end of your talk, you uh, went back to uh, uh, when you were trying to explain what the solutions can be uh, to address these problems. You were citing the issues of uh, the technology, which is already there, the large amount of cash reserves that the U.S. companies are sitting on. Um, please correct me if I misunderstood, but I don't see how the U.S. Tech, uh, the projection of technology or cash reserve by U.S. Com companies can be used as a way of providing solution for countries outside the U.S. One scenario I can think of is just a, another round of uh, imperialism, where uh, on the basis of uh, the, uh, the domination of the patent rights and the intellectual rights, et cetera, et cetera, the climate change or violence being used as a way of expanding the U.S. capitalism, for instance. Well, the way it would affect other countries is the way China's embrace of clean technology is affecting other countries by driving down the price. I mean, the U.S. is the largest economy in the world still, maybe not for too much longer. Uh, but if it embraced clean technology, though there would be economies of scale that would make this technology feasible to use everywhere in the world simply for reasons of cost. And if the U.S. doesn't do that, it, it is big enough that it s slows down, it retards the process of transformation globally. Um, now, you could make other critiques of, of how I left the story, which is like that alone is really not that much. I mean, you know, there's so many other problems. So since we've touched on this, you know, I think it's important to say that, I mean, I see the climate crisis not as the sum total of all the, of the environmental crisis. You know, there's so many pieces of the environmental crisis. But the science is pretty clear that climate change is kicking in, that climate change is going to set in faster than was um, originally thought. The idea of abrupt climate change was a real kind of like marginal idea in the early 80s. Now it's understood from, among other things, the ice cores that were drawn out of Greenland, which were only drawn out in the mid-90s and analyzed in the late 90s, that in fact the, 
the climate system goes through radical switches, that the, the climate regime, as, as they put it, can switch suddenly, not in a matter of hundreds of years, but in a matter of decades, that causes build up, affects lag, and then they kick in. So when I'm arguing this kind of hyper-pragmatic um, line, it's because I take this science seriously, and if we are going to buy time to deal with issues like over-exploitation of water, of the, you know, the rape of the sea by commercial fishing, by deforestation, this immediate problem that threatens to trump all the others has to be dealt with. It doesn't solve the other problems, but it's a way of buying time. And so that's the, the argument that I'm making there. Another you know, piece of good news, I think, is that China has really embraced clean technology. And um, photovoltaic prices are dropping to the point where I wouldn't be surprised if the 80% of people who don't have electricity in Africa, or no, 70%, 80% of people in the countryside, 40% of people in cities in Africa don't have um, electricity. And if solar panels become cheap enough and widely enough available, then never mind building electrical grids and all that. This will be like cell phones. It would be a leapfrog technology. And, you know, the guy out in the, you know, the end of the dirt road who's got his little store with a gas generator that keeps the refrigerator cold, you know, conceivably will be doing that with solar panels. So, and that's really the result of the Chinese subsidizing this and providing markets, you know. Um, and actually, you know what, it's actually not the Chinese. I mean, the Chinese market is big, but it's also what it is. It's sort of Chinese subsidy, sort of just, you know, classic East Asian um, dirigist, developmentalist, industrial policy, building up these industries, and then Germany really subsidizing the, adapt, the introduction of these technologies with its feed-in tariff, which allowed anyone to sell power at preferable rates into the grid. And this was the last law passed by West Germany before it went out of existence. And the, the, sort of the story is that the, the, the German utilities were so fixated on how to you know, absorb East Germany that they didn't pay attention until it was too late. And this actually quite significant law well, came into effect. And now Germany has about 20% you know, of its power comes from renewable energy and solar. Wind is very big, but solar is also huge there. And a lot of the Chinese technology, like SunTech, is one of the leading firms that has reduced the cost of photovoltaics. And they have used the German market to kind of build things up. And so, you know, presumably, hopefully, there'll be markets throughout the world now. Hopefully, that explains sort of what I'm saying. Um, acknowledging what you just said about technology spreading to the global south, your solutions, when you mentioned them, seem to focus on potential investment in the United States and the potential power of federal spending. I wondered if you had any other positives to point towards in the global south. Oh, in the global south, in terms of... In terms of... I mean, well, you know, in terms of mitigation, that's, that's what I was talking about. I mean, the global south isn't really responsible for the problem, by and large. So mitigation is not, you know... Um, there's much less of that needs to be done there. Uh, so really the issue is, in many ways, adaptation. So um, in terms of mitigation in the Global South, I don't have any examples really of... Actually, Morocco, interestingly enough, is very aggressive about embracing solar and wind. And this began in the 1990s. 
and they have they're they're doing uh, utility scale wind and solar. Some of it is state owned, some of it is private, but they also do decentralized solar in villages. And so they have I, I, what I think is a very good and sensible approach to this. So part of it, they're you know they want to like produce power and push it into the European market, and they're also not waiting to hook every village to the electrical grid before. That these villages get electricity. So there's a whole a program of subsidizing and encouraging the adaptation of small-scale um, off-the-grid solar. So that's one example. A lot of countries, you know, don't really do that much with mitigation, or they're doing the wrong thing, like uh, damming the whole discussion about damming the Mekong. I mean, that would be like a disastrous form of mitigation at one level. Um, environmentalists you know, go to Great Lakes to argue that these mega dams produce all of this methane and probably have really huge emissions anyway, but, you know, maybe they don't, actually. But if you kill the Mekong, if you dam the Mekong, you will kill the Mekong and you will destroy the Vietnamese economy and, and you know, undermine that whole region. And, that, I mean, there's an example of some, some sensible thinking finally coming to play in the World Bank. They've stopped, they were going to fund a lot of these dams and they've pulled back and they've been forced to pull back by protest and, and, you know, advocacy and, and agitation by civil society. Similarly, they're not going to fund the dam in Ethiopia on the Nile, the White Nile, I think. So those are examples of mitigation, good and bad in the Global South, but the primary thing is, I think, adaptation. And in Vietnam also, I was in Vietnam recently, and there's a discussion, there's really not much consciousness about climate change there, but there is a sort of struggle underway quietly behind the scenes as one scientist put it to me, between the cement mafia and the environmental scientists who each sort of have their holds in a ministry. I forget which ministry is which. The thing is the Department of Natural Resources and Environments and but anyway, I forget. But so they're lobbying sort of the you know the, the Prime Minister and those around him about what to do about the Mekong Delta. Because the Mekong Delta is the heart of the Vietnamese economy. It's you know less industrialized than one thinks. You think okay it's like you know being swept up in the sort of orbit of China and, and industrializing rapidly. But actually, the heart of its economy is still agriculture and fishing. And the, um, the Mekong fishery is hugely important. And also, um, Vietnam is generally number two, number three, sometimes number one rice exporter in the world, along with India and Thailand. They kind of all, generally, Thailand is the top, but they'll jockey for these positions. The vast majority, like 90-something percent of its exported rice, comes from the Mekong. 20 million people live in the Mekong. The whole thing is basically a meter above sea level. So there's a very serious discussion about what to do. And the scientists are arguing that there has to be a bioshield, that the state has to adopt policies that slowly withdraw from uh, the, the, the sort of first kilometer out to the coast, basically. You know, stop building roads, stop subsidizing things there, give people, people have a generation to get out of there before the sea level rises. So start now to sort of give back at least a kilometer of the coast to form a bioshield to break storm surges and absorb some of that water. And, um, and of course, the cement mafia, they want to just pave whatever they can pave. They're like, this is great. Yeah, we'll just build, we'll just build berms and dams and dikes, you know, forever. And we'll maintain them for the next hundred years. And it's just like, fine with us. So... That's another example of something, you know, I, I don't think they are going to try and, like, put berms on the edge of the Mekong because it would be 
insane and destroy the ecosystem, and I think it will be obvious. So they probably are going to um, begin creating a bioshield. I heard the core of your sort of your argument to be one that we are already experiencing increases in violence in the world because the early uh, steps in the process of climate change are generating increased volatility and scarcity for resources, enhancing competition, I mean, heightening competition and hence the potential for violent competition under those circumstances, proposition that I think is um, actually pretty consistent with what in other periods, you know, geographers who have studied natural hazards and all that have also shown that to have, you know, to ex have existed before this. But you are arguing, and I think credibly, that climate change faces us with a possible worldwide expansion and acceleration of those kinds of phenomena and hence poses an enormous challenge to our political uh, and military systems, not to mention economic. Fine. I find it interesting that though, that, and I read that as sort of the core proposition you, you put out here, and then the discussion has actually turned to climate change mitigation. But the other thing you said, which I think is also credible, is that we're already locked in to the middle range scenario of climate change, meaning mitigation might keep us from the high range of it, but it's not gonna keep us out of climate change. Therefore, extrapolating from your proposition, we are going to be faced with a tendency for heightened violence in the world. So then, it seems to me, or at least what I, what, what I come out of this with is, or my brain is turning on is, what are we gonna do about that? And to, now, there you talked about militarization and you talked about army uh, and intelligence services being more realistic than the general public debate. Just in the science, Which not is, in their approach. But. Okay. But, and that's interesting, too. Now, add into this, it seems to me, one other thing, which is that in the context of this period in which we're going to experience climate change, we're also going to be experiencing the most rapid rise in urbanization in human history, right? So the, we're going to concentrate more people into cities on a global scale. And this will involve, even without climate change, massive migration into cities, right? We passed over the 50% uh, line last year. Um, and the, but at the same time, the long arm of the city will be ever longer, right, to service itself and feed itself. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that then we could divide the violence question into the this kind of emerging geography of the world, which is going to be obviously the non-urban part of it, which will be increasingly organized in non-traditional ways. Or to put it a bit crudely and bluntly, we're about to go through another one of those convulsive periods in human history where a lot of traditional non-urban parts of the human settlement and social pattern are about to be... Uh, I don't know what words to choose, massively reorganized in a short amount of time. And notably, there will be penetrations of markets and technologies into the countryside at a scale that we've probably never seen before in a very short amount of time. And at the same time, that means that the, the people who are going to be shoved off the land all over the world and urbanized, 
right, will probably suffer the effects of resource volatility and competition in their new urban habitats. Mm -hmm. And hence, if we extrapolate from that, they're going to be, when, when, when the troubles hit, a lot of the troubles are going to be urban. So the struggles are going to be happening, not exclusively in cities, but, and indeed, the, the transition itself will produce, as it always does, a lot of violence, right? But I'm sort of wondering where you go with that in terms of, let's not talk about climate change um, mitigation. That's the happy story here, right, that we all want to believe in. But you said it's not going to happen. Or you sort of said it's, I'm, I'm, no, I don't want to read too much into it, but you sort of said we're not going to avoid all of climate change. We're going to get probably a good dose of it, and therefore we'll get a good dose of, vi of potential for increase in violence. So where, where would you recommend we look in terms of strategies to deal with the violence, not to deal with the climate change, but to deal with its proxy effect in violence? I mean, one thing I would say is that um, there's two things. One is that, you know, part of this thesis, this catastrophic convergence, is about the legacy of violent solutions to whatever, violent or social problems. And that is the worst thing that can happen. So... Uh, clearly, militarism and, you know, uh, a transformation of the state into nothing but its repressive functions is the worst type of adaptation. That's teeing up for oppressive, horrible adaptation. So that, you know, that has to be critiqued and that, and that the ongoing critique about that has to be linked to climate change. Um, it's very hard. What to do about violence? Well, I mean, one thing is that, you know, n there are examples of climate disruption, extreme weather events, building solidarity. And it's not always that people that, you know, turn on each other and fight over the scraps. Um, you know, frequently in societies and communities that are organized to some extent and where there's enough social solidarity, people come together in the face of these crises. And so you had an example of this in Vermont, which was very interesting, where uh, Hurricane Irene which was no longer a hurricane when it came and hit New York City, which was actually just a tropical storm, like in, in probably a matter of an hour in the middle of the night when nobody was aware, dumped an enormous amount of water on Vermont and flooded out bridges and roads. It was the worst flood since the 1920s. And um, a number of towns were cut off. And because of this tradition of town meeting in New England, which is a very different structure than what you would find in the south or the west, um, people had this practice of coming together and an ownership of government at a local level and they came together and sort of rebuilt the road links and, you know, and shared food, took care of each other. So there are examples like that around the world where extreme weather creates solidarity and that can be built on. And I think the key thing though too is that not to romanticize that effect, um, you know, Rebecca Solnit has a book about the was it, utopian and disaster, I forget what it's called. But, I mean, this happens frequently in disasters. Uh, I, I, you know, I've seen it in San Francisco during the 89 earthquake. I was in New Orleans right after the flood, the third day after the flood, which was interesting because the place was flooded with cops with automatic weapons. But it wasn't particularly violent. People were trying to help each other. And these local states who sent their SWAT teams and stuff, they were frequently operating with the best of intentions. 
And that's all they have due to 30 years of the war on drugs. They don't have, like, you know, a special civil engineer medical team to send. All they have are cops dressed like uh, soldiers. And so, you know, they sent what resources they have, which were, due to federal policy, repressive. But, so, you, you know, you see, even there in New Orleans, people are coming together and... Um, but then what happens, of course, is if the process of rebuilding and recovery doesn't work well, then things fall apart and, and you know, fragment and factionalize. But your question is, is, is a tough one, and I don't really have a good answer for what to do about violence um, other than prevent it and try and build in resiliency and try and build in solidarity. You know, it's like resilience and solidarity are the things that have to be preserved and nurtured to prevent violent adaptation in the face of this crisis. I have a question. Um, you mentioned Morocco and like decentral solar systems. Um, I was wondering what your opinion is on like more central versions of that, like solar power plants in particular in yeah the Sahara. I'm I'm for it. Um, you know, if you think about it, uh, it makes perfect sense. If you have a resource like lots of sun in a place and solar panels are expensive and you have an electrical grid going to that place where there's all this sun, why not deploy the, the investment where you're going to get maximum return from it? Uh, I, mean, I mean, I'm not saying just in terms of, I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about profit, I'm talking about, you know, utility. So there's a, I think utility scale renewable energy makes perfect sense. You know, people very romantically want to sort of distribute the grid, and that works too. That's good. But I think that there needs to be a combination. There needs to be feed-in tariffs, as in Germany, where anyone can sell power to the grid because that encourages people to try and turn their homes and buildings into sources of power rather than, than just cons you know, points of consumption. But that it also it, it makes sense to concentrate investments where the resources are if you have the infrastructure to then move it to where the resource is needed. Because intermittency is a huge problem with renewable energy, right? If you, if you invest a billion dollars in wind and it's in the wrong place, I mean, that's stupid if you're only getting, like, you know, 50% uh, use out of it, whereas if you, you know, put it in the proper place, you could get more power from it. So I'm, I'm in favor of that. To the gentleman's point about violence, because I think that we might need to be much more subtle about the idea of violence in terms of things like prices, um, being speculated with food, um, malnutrition, uh, all sorts of uh, disease that will be spreading through climate change that won't feel like uh, an armed conflict. It won't feel like that. It'll be a much more subtle, silent ripple effect that will affect generations of people. Um, in ways that we cannot visibly see. And I think it's really important if we're going to kind of trace this genealogy from north to south to kind of check all of that information. And I was just wondering if you could count, um, sort of you know, illustrate some of the northern examples of that, perhaps. We've had a lot of southern examples, perhaps some northern examples of how it's kind of going, this sort of neoliberal turn back to the kind of its creators in the last... Uh, in terms of like the public health implications of the sort of yeah, that public kind of health, violence? but also um, a massive uh, yeah inflation of food prices, uh, charitable kind of uh, feeding programs, food stamps, the whole backlash, the war within, if you like, in the north, as mm -hmm. well as some of these southern examples, and maybe perhaps a more subtle level. Well, I think you know, I mean, I think there's the 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 public health component of diseases spreading 
And, you know, that's one, one aspect of how you see it subtly in the U.S., Lyme's disease and ticks, for example. Um, but, you know, the fact of the matter is in terms of, like, the, the standard of living of people in the north being really adversely affected due to climate change, I think you know, it's, too, it's too soon to, to say that that's happening in a way that drives violence. It's like, yes, food prices are going up, and that's difficult for poor people in the U.S., but it's not causing violence that I see. I mean, other than the public health aspect of, you know, the quality of nutrition going down when food prices go up, that sort of structural violence. But I don't know of any examples of sort of, of, of climate-triggered violence other than the ones I gave, which is really, it's like this, it stokes this xenophobic project of internal repression, which is, you know, goes far beyond um, just immigrants in the U.S. It's, you know, that, that affects everybody, the, the surveillance and, and police state that is increasingly justified in climate terms. Uh, there are two questions in the back, and then there's one done. Hi, um, my name is Mukund Bangalore. I'm a master's student. You talked about Germany's speed and tariff and its role in promoting renewables. My question is, what's the role of policy certainty in creating an environment for <coughs> renewable investment? So the role of policy certainty, so the feed-in tariff set in place the rates for these new uh, re renewable investment. What's the role of that, and does it have a chance in the United States to have a similar sort of effect in terms of either cap-and-trade system or a feed-in tariff? Um, there, at the state level, there are movements to try and, um, you know, engineer policies that would encourage that. So several states have feed-in tariffs. Other states have uh, net metering where, where you can bank power with the power company, but you don't get paid for it. You just basically, you know, if you produce extra, then you can use some and not get paid, not, not pay for it. Um, so it's at the, the, the local level. There's some of it going on. Um, <clears throat> hi. Um, you've spoken about technical fixes, um, infrastructural fixes, but you haven't really touched on behavioral change uh, because that's obviously a very difficult one to um, bring home. So I'm just wondering, uh, obviously you've traveled extensively around the world and you've contributed significantly in your own way to anthropogenic climate change. Uh, so I'm just wondering to what degree you have a personal conflict here. Are you envisaging or hoping that your positive contribution um, to climate change through your research will offset your personal negative contribution through extensive traveling? Uh, I don't, I mean, it, no, I don't think it will offset it. I don't think my carbon footprint can be offset because the carbon is out there. So, but I do think it will have some utility, or I hope it will have some utility. And, uh, yeah, I, I feel guilty about flying around in airplanes. Um, but, um, you know, and I'm not sure I have such a, a clear answer about how one, what, what one's personal ethics should be in the face of this. But one thing I will say, because I do think, you know, personal ethics are important, but one thing I will say is that particularly in the United States, we are like almost as a nation incapable of thinking structurally. So sort of methodological individualism is rampant everywhere. And um, so I don't, I don't embrace that that much because I'm constantly arguing against it with my students. You know, they think that as the mainstream of the environmental movement in the U.S. has for 30 years, 
that if people's consciousness changes, then their behavior will change, then the structures will change in response generally to consumer practices. And that, I think, overlooks a lot of how politics actually works, where behavior and ethics are um, overridden or made irrelevant by structural decisions or shaped by institutions. I mean, the U.S. military is a perfect example. It's full of people with all sorts of interesting ethical frameworks, which, you know, don't matter. Because the military is like, hey, you know what? You can think whatever you want and do, you know, pray, read whatever you want, pray to whoever you want, but, like, you have to follow this manual, do these things, be in this place at this time, follow these orders, and if you don't, you get prosecuted. So it's like we have structural institutional mechanisms for making this machine do what it has to do. And the individuals within it are free to have any ethical framework they want, as long as it doesn't contradict the policy. And that's an extreme example, military, but, you know, a lot of societies like that. So I think it would be more effective if, um, you know, if there were policies, if there were a carbon tax and it were really just impossibly onerous for me to afford a ticket to London, and then maybe we would have really excellent kinds of, uh, you know, technological connections and we would be, you know, fluent in, in engaging with each other through technology. I mean, I don't know. I, I just tried doing a talk this morning to people in D.C., and the technology was not up there. But my point being that I just, I don't, my, my theory of social change is not, does not pivot on individuals, their ethics, and their choices. Though, as an individual, one has to confront that. And I, you know, I don't, for whatever it's worth, and it's really not really worth anything, I think, ultimately, in the big picture, I do feel bad about flying around and being part of a civilization that's, you know, destroying the earth. But, you know, what can you do other than try and <laughs> struggle against it and, and with whatever skills you have? Yeah, well, just very briefly regarding that last comment, I think creating awareness on climate change is quite a good way to reconcile yourself with the footprint that your uh, flights might have. But anyway, um, well... So I'm okay with contradictions. It's... <laughs> Something I learned from Andy Pratt. Yeah, well, um, think with during, the, during the first part of your lecture, the, the first thing that came to my mind is um, a book which was written by an American scholar, and the book is called Late uh, Victorian um, Holocaust. Holocausts. So, I mean, I found really interesting that that book traces the relation between mass starvation for means in the global south, not only in the former English Empire, but in Latin America and some parts of Asia where the British were actually, weren't actually there. Um, and uh, the, the, the most astonishing thing of this, of this book is that it ultimately says that um, Western policymakers, namely Victorian policymakers at that time, got to the conclusion that um, the social Darwinist thing that uh, there was no sense to go to assist the poor when they were starving because ultimately they were not well prepared for civilization, so therefore they were going to starve. So my question is, until which extent do you reckon that that assertion, that assumption, is, is nowadays alive in the international organizations, in the Western policymakers who actually have something to do with it? Um, you know, I don't know. I would just be speculating. But, I mean, definitely that, that kind of social Darwinist sociobiology lurks um, beneath the surface of a lot of policymaking in the U.S. The, 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 like, the sort of social, bio, so, social biology as a public discussion is just sort of out of control, like 
you know, the, the, the way that uh, genes, and I guess it's the same here in the UK, I mean, from reading the, the British press, but, um, you know, the, the obsession with genetics, uh, the sort of, you know, what I would consider pseudoscience, I mean, you, you never hear about the critiques of that stuff. You know, they never talk about Stephen Jay Gould. They never talk about Lewton and Rose um, and, you know, their book, Not in Our Genes, which exposed Sir Cyril Burt for being a total fraud. Charles Murray, who wrote The Bell Curve, that was, who was making genetic arguments about intelligence and race, you know, he was a complete, he is a complete fraud. That book was totally dismantled. The entire argument rested on five articles from Mankind Quarterly, which is a, you know, loopy, racist, academic publication run by some Scottish nobleman, essentially, or aristocrat, whatever. You know, and it was like, this was totally exposed, and Charles Murray is back. He's at the top of the list. He's brought around a a progressive sort of paper. The Boston Review included him in a a recent roundtable about early childhood uh, intervention in schools. So, uh, yeah, this stuff is like zombie theory, man. It's like, you can just, like, shoot it in the head as many times as you want. It just, like, keeps getting up and coming back. So it's very dangerous. Christian, thanks. Thanks very much. Thanks for reminding us what engaged scholarship is. Thanks to you all. Thanks to the stewards.